Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in section six through nine of the Doctrine and Covenants. These early sections deal with the Lord teaching the saints how to hear his voice, how to receive revelation. To give you a little bit of background, in the fall of 1828, Oliver Cowdery is about 120, 130 miles away in Palmyra, and he's teaching school, and he's boarding with the Smith family. And 120, 130 miles away from this experience in Palmyra, Joseph is in Pennsylvania, and he's with Emma, and the Lord has told him in March to hold off on translating the plates, that to wait for a little bit, and the Lord's going to send him some help. And little does Joseph know that Oliver Cowdery's being prepared. Oliver Cowdery, when he's boarding with the Smith family far away in New York, hears about Joseph Smith, and he hears about the plates, and he starts to quiz Joseph Smith's father and ask him questions about the plates and about what's happening. And he eventually starts talking to him about these things, and Oliver Cowdery goes and he asks the Lord, which right away, doesn't that show us, Bryce, about Oliver's heart? That's right. And one, we're going to get really into the rules of revelation, and Oliver just knocks them out of the park instinctively. And one of those early ones that we're going to talk about is revelation has to be sought. The Lord just doesn't come down and hit us with a two-by-four and tell us what to do. Very rarely. I mean, there there are occasions where he tells the brother of Jared, this is exactly what you're going to do. But most revelation has to be sought. And so we already see the kind of person that Oliver Cowdery is. He has like, the spiritual experience. Yeah, he's already seeking. And the level of trust he has in the revelations that he receives is just unprecedented. Oliver was the right man. There was just, I, I am convinced that there was no way this early process could have gone forward without Oliver. So he ends school, the term ends, and he makes a beeline for Joseph, which tells us again about his heart. He goes to meet him, and on April 5th, he arrives, and on April 7th, Joseph's like, giddy up, let's go. They start translating. Now, he picks up in the plate text right where we left off with the lost manuscript in King Benjamin. So we're missing part of what's going on in Mosiah, but we pick it up, and they go from Mosiah to the end of the Book of Mormon, they translate to the end of Moroni, and then they pick up the small plates. So at the end of the translation period, they're doing first and second books of Nephi, Jacob, Enos, Jerem, Omni. If you really want to have your mind blown, just pick up the Book of Mormon and King Benjamin's address and read it, and then go back and read the small plates. How many references do Alma and Mormon and some of these great editors and authors, they're pulling off these motifs from the small plates? And they're weaving it seamlessly in their text. So if your condition is, hey, Joseph Smith wrote this, then he's a master genius to be able to go stuff that he hasn't even written yet and weave it seamlessly in the narrative. And that kind of stuff's happening. Now, the whole translation takes place in a very short time. So April 7th is when they start and they're finished with the manuscript 
on June 30th. So by our math, that's seven, seven and a half pages a day. So they're just cranking. That's kind of the context. June 30th, the translation's complete, and then they have to make another manuscript for the printer, and there's a lot more going on. But from June 30th till March of the next year is they're getting the manuscript ready for the printer, the printer's working on it, and by March 26th of the next year, the first copies of the Book of Mormon become available. So that's the context of section six through nine. Once again, we're at the very beginnings with Oliver and Joseph. They're sitting at a table. It's April. It's 1829. And Oliver starts to have these questions. And one of his questions is, okay, I've had these experiences, but this is just too fantastic. And I can see him having a little bit of doubt. And I think we all have had this, haven't we, Bryce? Times in our life when we're like, is this in my head? Am I really having spiritual experiences? How do I know the voice of the Lord? Yeah, there's two types of doubts we often have. One is the what I call the first vision doubt, and that is the darkness that comes before the light hits you, the darkness that tries to prevent the light from happening. And then there's like the third Nephi one doubt that after you've seen great signs and felt his voice, you have these doubts. Did I really hear that? Was that really revelation? And so Oliver's kind of going through that same period, and he's doubting himself. And so I would invite you to pay attention to this for the next couple of weeks. One of the major themes of the early part of the Doctrine and Covenants is how to hear the voice of the Lord. The Lord has to teach these inexperienced people how to receive revelation, because a lot of the ideas out there at the time on how revelation came are just not correct and they're not going to lead to revelation. So Joseph is going to be tutored. Oliver's going to be tutored. So let's just jump into that. Let's see if we can, we're going to tackle this a little bit differently rather than jump into chapter six or section six and then seven and then eight and nine. Let's kind of take a thematic approach and go back and let's talk about how does God speak? How does the Lord reveal to us And then how do we encourage more and more of that? We're going to make several lists today. List number one is how does God speak? Because one of the ways to invite more revelation is to recognize how he is speaking to you and recognize that it's coming. I am absolutely convinced after spending my lifetime teaching these principles in the Doctrine and Covenants that most Latter-day Saints do not believe they receive frequent revelation. Most Latter-day Saints think that Revelation comes once in a great while. Why is that? I think it's because we misunderstand what we mean by Revelation. So let's jump into that and see if we can distinguish several types of ways the Lord speaks to us so that you can begin to recognize, oh my goodness, I receive frequent Revelation. He's constantly speaking to me. So let's start in section 8 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Now, the setting here is Oliver wants to translate for himself. He's sitting here watching Joseph do it day in and day out for hours at a time. That's kind of a normal thing, too. Like, you see somebody do something cool, you're like, I want to try that. I want to try that. I want to try that. So section 8 is kind of a asking the Lord for permission to try, and then section 9 is the answers as to why he failed. But we're going to get a whole lot of revelation material here. Let's let's focus in verse 2. Section 8, verse 2, in one of the most definitive statements the Lord makes, he says, I will tell you in your mind and in your heart. God speaks at least in two different ways. 
He speaks to our mind and he speaks to our heart. Richard G. Scott very powerfully taught that a revelation to the mind are those specific revelations where he's telling you exactly what to do. Go here, talk to that person, go out to the football field, call this person, something that you just needed to know, information specific to the situation you're in, that's a revelation to your mind. And that's the one that we often think is revelation. When God said, oh, go check this particular thing, and oh my goodness, it was just, you know, like Elder McConkie's dad felt the impression to run out and stop a horse from running, only to find out that his son was dangling from that horse. You know, that's kind of a revelation to the mind. Do this right now. This is specific to the situation. But the Lord says he also speaks to our heart. And Elder Scott revealed that a revelation to the heart is more of a generic message, not a specific thing to do, but more of a keep going, guys, you're headed in the right direction. It's more of a generic to the heart. So what I'd like to do is let's see if we can go through these early sections of the Doctrine and Covenants and maybe in pull in from some the Book of Mormon and the New Testament, other scriptures that show examples of revelation to the heart and then revelation to the mind. So let's start with heart, because I'm convinced that most people brush this off and don't think of this as revelation. The people who think that revelation comes once in a while, I think are thinking that revelation is to the mind and they're disregarding revelations to the heart. So let's see if we can make a beautiful list of kind of examples that the Lord gives of revelations to the heart. Not so much a specific answer to a problem, as much as it's a general encouragement or a gift to keep going. You know, sometimes I think about this with my wife. I know she loves me, but it's awesome to hear it. Yeah. And it's like, if you have a testimony, you know God lives, but isn't it cool to sit in sacrament and you're taking it and the Holy Ghost just comes and you just feel this warm feeling. And like you said, it's not anything specific, but it's God saying, you know what, Bryce? That's exactly yeah. heart revelation. Thanks for being here. It's that God loves me. He's helping me with this situation, but I'm not necessarily getting a specific answer to a specific situation. So here's our list. Number one is how does God speak to our hearts? Now, you can you add to this list. We're just going to throw out the ones that are mentioned in the Scriptures, a few that are mentioned in the Scriptures. As you find them, you may want to keep this list throughout the rest of your life. So I'd like to start in section 11. I think there's a really, really good place to start, and I think this is one of the most common ways God speaks to our heart. And if you recognize that this is revelation, he's going to tell us it's revelation, then you're going to realize you receive it far more than you think you do. Doctrine and Covenant section 11 was given to Hiram Smith. We'll give you the background when we get there, but look at verse 12. Now, verily, verily, I say unto you, put your trust in that spirit which leadeth to do good. Nothing specific that you have to do, but just inspired to be a better person. Don't you think Oliver Cowdery, when he was teaching school and he was uh, boarding with the Smith family, felt that, a desire to do good, a desire to be a better person? How many times in your life have you felt the desire to be a better person, 
a desire to do good and to do righteously. Do you ever have that when you walk out of sacrament? You're like, I am never going to sin again. <laughs> you know, and it's not so much, well, here's something specific I need to do. It was a message to my heart. I want to be a better person. And notice the rest of verse 12, to do justly, to walk humbly, to judge righteously. All of those are messages to the heart. So I'm just going to put first on our list is that the Holy Ghost speaks to our heart and gives us a desire to do good, a desire to be a better person. Now, verse 13, I think, has, to me, one of the greatest manifestations of the Holy Ghost that we often don't think is revelation. Look at the last word of verse 13. Look at that last phrase. He will fill our soul with joy. Not pleasure, joy. You can have joy even in tribulation and trial. That's revelation. That's the Spirit speaking to you. It's a feeling of peace and joy. It's the joy that comes from the gospel. So there's our second one. God speaks and fills us with joy. Let's throw in a few from the Book of Mormon, because I really love to just go to the Book of Mormon and show a couple. Let's jump to Alma chapter 17, the missionaries. Here's a very common manifestation of the Holy Ghost that I see so many people just kind of brush off. But this is revelation. This is God speaking to my heart. Turn to Alma chapter 17, verse 12. Now, what did a bunch of young men going on a very scary mission need more than anything else? Nothing specific. Now, he will tell them how to preach the gospel specifically. But what do they need right now? What do they need in their youth? Mike, did you find the word? Yeah, so according to this, it says they they basically they need courage. The, he the, filled them with courage. He, he's injecting this power into them. That's revelation. That's a manifestation of God to our heart, not a specific to the mind. It's just courage, courage to go on a mission, courage to try something new, courage to jump into something. God filled them with courage. Now, tell me that's not a marvelous manifestation of the Holy Ghost. And every time he fills you with courage, he is telling you he loves you, he cares about you, and he is speaking to you. Courage. Think back over your life. How many times has he just injected you with courage to stand up and do something right? That's really where we get the word enthusiasm. Yeah. The word enthusiasm is from the Greek, which is God is injecting himself into you if through Theo is God. So God is in us. So if you've ever been excited when you taught a gospel lesson or you've been excited on a new, maybe a new business you're starting that you feel really good about, that is the Lord saying to me, and that's one of my ways of looking at this is the Lord saying, hey, you got this. Bryce, I had that when I was praying about getting married. I remember I was stoked to get married and I was like, I found the one and I was so excited and pumped. I'm, I'm excited to do this. Or in a career choice, if you've ever had that. When I chose my career, I was like, this is it, right? Like this eureka, I found it. So there's going to be a specific answer to the question on that one day, but then there's going to be this to your heart, this God is with you and courage and encouragement. I love that one. So there's another one on our list, a desire to do good. We talked about filled our hearts with joy, um, courage. How about we go back to 1 Nephi chapter 2? 
What did the Lord do to Nephi? Now, he told Lehi to get out of Jerusalem. That was the mind. That was the specific. You've got to get out of Jerusalem because it's going to be destroyed. But what does he tell Nephi? Go back to 1 Nephi chapter 2, verse 16. So Nephi, his dad's told them they're leaving Jerusalem, and he's not sure about that. He's confused. He probably is a little discouraged about that. He's leaving his friends. So watch what the Lord does. No specific answer. The Lord doesn't come and say, here's a specific thing to do, but what does he do? Do you have that one, Mike? First yeah. Nephi 2, 16. Yeah. Listen to the manifestation of the Holy Ghost. It came to pass that I, Nephi, being exceedingly young, nevertheless being large in stature, I love that, and also having great desires to know the mysteries of God, wherefore I did cry unto the Lord, and behold, he did visit me, and it softened my heart. There it and I is. did believe. How many times have you felt a softening of your heart? Just a softening, something, you know, that the Lord commanded you to do something, and it was little, I don't want to do that, or you got called to a position that terrifies you, and you don't want to accept it, and then comes a softening of your heart. By the way, that also shows that Nephi was not stoked to go. Yeah. In other words, he and Laman and Lemuel were in the same boat, but the difference was... Nephi sought the Lord. Yeah. He turned to the Lord. Okay, let's do another one. Let's jump to Mosiah. There's a couple really good ones in Mosiah. Go to Mosiah chapter 5, verse 2. One of the greatest ways you can tell that the Holy Ghost has been with you. Notice they don't get a specific revelation. Hey, you've got to repent of that particular sin, or you need to do this, or you need to call that person to that specific office. It's just a generic here. It's a to the heart. But this is a very, very common one, and we don't even recognize that we've received revelation. What happens? Mosiah 5.2. They all cried with one voice, saying, Yea, we believe all the words which thou hast spoken unto us. And also, we know of their surety and truth because of the Spirit of the Lord omnipotent, Here we go, which ready? has wrought a mighty change in us, or there in our hearts. So we talk about a softening of our heart, but the Spirit also changes our heart. He changes us. If you have changed, you have received revelation, because God is the one that comes in and injects you with this desire to change. Do you see how there's a common element in all of the ones that we've talked about? One of the great manifestations of the Holy Ghost, and one of the ways you can absolutely testify that you have received revelation is that it has changed you, that God has changed your heart. And things that you wouldn't do earlier or didn't do, you now do. And things you did you now don't do because he's changed you. There's a very, very common one. All right, let's go to Mosiah chapter 24. This is where Alma, Alma the elder, and those who believed his words and Abinadi, this is the King Noah episode. Alma is preaching, and then along comes Amulon and puts tasks upon them, and their life is hard. So just like the sons of Mosiah needed courage to face a very scary task, what is it that Alma's people needs with tasks being placed upon them, with a heavy burden on their shoulders? Now, they will be told how to escape later. Today, that specific message is not coming. Instead, they get a general message to their heart. 
And what does he say? Mosiah chapter 24, 13 through 15, watch for two very powerful manifestations of the Holy Ghost that often come to our heart. And it came to pass that the voice of the Lord came to them in their afflictions, saying, Lift up your heads and be of good comfort, for I know of the covenant which ye have made unto me, and I will covenant with my people and deliver them out of bondage. And I will also ease the burdens which are put upon your shoulders, that even you cannot feel them upon your backs. So comfort. Now he's going to use peace of mind to Oliver Cowdery, but this is peace of heart. This is comfort that comes in a difficult situation that isn't telling me something to do. It's just wrapping his arms around me. It's comfort that comes in difficult times. That's revelation. Now, there's one more that's coming. Keep going, Mike. You cannot feel them upon your backs, even while you are in bondage. And this I will do, that ye may stand as witnesses for me hereafter, and that ye may know of a surety that I, the Lord God, do visit my people in their afflictions. Now it came to pass that the burdens which were laid upon Alma and his brethren were made light. Yea, the Lord did strengthen them. There's the next one. That they could bear up their burdens with ease. So another manifestation of the Holy Ghost, not a specific to do, but just strength to bear our burden. Comfort and strength. Oh, and then look at the end. It talks about that they did submit cheerfully and with patience. So that's another gift of the Spirit. Yep. Let's do one more from the Book of Mormon, and then we'll jump to the very end of the Doctrine and Covenants. Let's go to 2 Nephi chapter 31. This is a very important one you need to understand. And so often we disregard that revelation has occurred. We think the sign of forgiveness is that I don't feel guilty anymore. And that may or may not be true. And part of me would like to think that I will feel guilty for my stupid mistakes for the rest of my life. It doesn't mean I haven't been forgiven for them. Here is a greater manifestation of the Holy Ghost. Verse 17, 2 Nephi 31, 17, at the very end, what does the Holy Ghost do when it comes into our life? It very clearly cleanses us. If you have ever felt clean, you have received revelation that you have been cleansed. And you get that feeling. I'm not perfect, but I'm clean. I love that one. This is a tremendous list we're seeing. So a desire to do good. I'm going to infuse you with joy and courage and confidence and comfort I'm going to give you strength. I'm going to soften your heart so that it becomes an accepting heart. I'm going to cleanse it. I'm going to fill you with patience. That's a powerful list. Let's do one more. Let's go to the Doctrine and Covenants section 121. This is the Liberty Jail letter where the Lord says, many are called and few are chosen. And then he gives us this beautiful list of righteous dominions and the Holy Ghost will be thy constant companion. Now go to verse 45, Doctrine and Covenants 121, verse 45, and we've made a list of all of these in our show notes. If you're having a hard time jotting these scriptures down, just go to talkingscripture.org. You'll find this list on our show notes, and we'd encourage you to add to it whatever other manifestations you've seen. But I love this one. 
This, to me, is a great evidence that God is working with you. Section 121, verse 45, talks about the Holy Ghost will be your constant companion. Now, watch what else happens. If the Holy Ghost is going to be your constant companion, what is going to wax strong in that verse? Let thy bowels also be full of charity towards all men and to the household of faith, and let virtue garnish thy thoughts unceasingly. Then shall thy confidence wax strong in there the presence of God. What's the main difference between a returning missionary and a leaving missionary? It's that confidence that they've gained. It's just incredible to watch. Two years or 18 months working with the Spirit day in and day out has a tremendous influence on them, and they come home with confidence. There's just no better way to describe what the Holy Ghost does. He just fills us with confidence. So look at that list and add to it. What are some of the messages to the heart that God gives? Just like he says in section eight, I'm going to speak to your heart. I can see why maybe Oliver might have been a little bit concerned or maybe confused because when he hears about Joseph's experiences, there's visions and the father and the son, and he's seen an angel. And I remember the first time I really started to become a student of religion when I was probably 12 or 13. And I thought, well, if I'm righteous or if I pray, I'm going to see an angel. And I think the Lord right out of the gate is trying to teach the saints. This is how— Wrong expectations. Right. And, yeah. if, and if your expectations are wrong, if your assumptions are wrong, that causes other problems, doesn't it? I mean, you're illustrating this so well. It's in the Book of Mormon. It's in the Doctrine and Covenants. But in essence, the Lord is really trying to help us. What I'm hearing you say is, like, he's with us all the time. All the time. Do you remember that experience that Elijah has with the fire and the earthquake? And the Lord wasn't in the fire, and the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. The Lord was in a still, small voice. And we have to learn to recognize he is always with us. When hands are laid upon us and we receive the Holy Ghost, and when we partake of the sacrament that says we will always have his spirit to be with us, I think we need to recognize how frequently he speaks to us. Courage, confidence, strength, peace, those messages that come to our heart are often not associated with revelation, and they need to be. So now let's get to the other list, because the Lord says, I will speak to your mind. Now, Oliver Cowdery needs a confirmation that the work in which he's engaged is true. That's a message to your mind. A confirmation of truth is a message to the mind. This gospel is true. I should join it. I need to go on a mission. I need to talk to this person, or I need to do this particular action. It will be difficult to survive in this world without being able to receive specific messages from the Holy Ghost. As a father, I had this experience with one of my children where they come and say, okay, we're thinking about children. We're thinking about buying a home. We're thinking, I mean, these are big decisions, right? Career. So no matter where you are in life, I think where we are, it's like, it's good to have this to help them to make the decision. One of the things I told my, my married children, I looked at them and I said, this is your decision between you two and the Lord, Right and some general things. Of course, I have my agenda, right? Give me grandbabies and give them to me now, right? <laughs> but in essence, this is really a personal thing between them and the Lord. And I'm grateful that the Lord trusts us to work on this. So go through this, Bryce. How are we going to get these specific yeah. answers? How are we going to get these? You know, what college to attend, what degree, what job, you know, those so many decisions that I need help with. Let's start with Oliver Cowdery in section six. 
okay? Because he gets a very specific answer that the work is true and that he could continue, starting in verse 22 and 23. He's reminding Oliver of the experience that led him to come translate for Joseph Smith. And remembering that experience will will help with his doubts that he's now having, the constant stream of doubts that we often have. So the Lord says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, if you desire a further witness, cast your mind upon the night that you cried unto me in your heart, that you might know concerning these things. Notice, concerning these things is a specific request. He was seeking a specific answer to a specific question. I think Oliver would have loved it if Moroni would have walked in right there. And I think, I think that, that's what he and wanted. maybe he was expecting a revelation or a vision. But notice how the Lord answers. The night you desired an answer concerning these things, did I not speak peace to your mind? Now, peace to my heart is a more generic, doesn't necessarily tell me that this particular work is true. It tells me that God loves me and to move forward. But peace to my mind is a feeling that comes over you in the moment that says, I feel good about this. I feel peace. And I was just recently so confused. And a feeling of peace has come over me. That is one very powerful way that God answers is a feeling of peace in a confusing situation. Should I quit teaching and go to Pennsylvania and help be this man's scribe? I don't even know him. Never met him. But should I go be a scribe? Should I give up my life's work of being a teacher? Everything I've... You see the confusion of I, I don't know if I should leave my job? And then comes a, a moment of clarity and peace, and that's divine inspiration. That's one very specific way God answers, is this moment of peace in my mind, that I now feel peace in terms of this confusing situation. Now go to section nine. That's very related to what he's going to be taught after he can't translate the gold plates. The Lord is speaking specifically about revelation and translating the plates, but hear the bigger message. Verse 8, I say unto you that you must study it out in your mind, and then you must ask me if it be right. If it is right, I'll cause that your bosom shall burn within you. Now, I'm going to pause on that one because, man, has that been blown out of proportion over the years. I want to focus on the next phrase. Therefore, you shall feel it is right. In other words, sometimes God answers our specific prayer with this feeling that comes over us that it's the right thing to do. I attended the University of Utah because of that feeling. I didn't know where the right place for me to go was. I was struggling to make that decision, and I drove up to the University of Utah, and as I walked around for the very first time, this feeling of this is right, came over me. It's very related to this clarity, this feeling of peace in confusion, but this one was a feeling that this is the right, I know the right thing to do. Now, let me compare that to verse 9. If you were to ask me, how does God speak most commonly to me, 
when he speaks to my mind. It's not section 6. It's not section 9, verse 8. It's section 9, verse 9. For me, this is the most common, specific way God speaks to me. I point that out because this is one we often brush off. Notice verse 9. If it's not right, you shall have no such feelings. And then he goes on to describe a stupor of thought. Now, I don't know exactly what the Lord meant by a stupor of thought, but I like to use the language of verse 8. Sometimes I feel that it's right, and sometimes he tells me that it's wrong. Now, the voice that something is wrong is a very specific voice that I've learned to hear. And how many times have you heard that voice say, you shouldn't have done that, or you didn't need to say that, or what were you thinking when you did that? It's the Holy Ghost saying that what you did was wrong. Now, here's why I think that's so significant. The Lord doesn't usually come down and dictate exactly what we need to do. But the moment we go astray, he lets us know. If I were giving you a ride home, as long as I'm going in the general direction, odds are you don't say anything. As long as I'm heading generally to your house, you don't give me moment by moment, second by second instructions. But what happens the moment I take a wrong turn? Instantly, you speak up. Now, tell me God doesn't do that so often in your life. As long as you're going the right direction, he lets you go. He's not going to come down, pat you on the back every mile and say, yep, keep going. You're going the right direction. But the moment you turn off course, he speaks immediately almost, and he lets me know. One of the very best ways to know you're doing the right thing is to know you're not doing the wrong thing. As long as I'm going the right direction, he's not going to necessarily constantly speak. But the moment I go the wrong direction, he speaks. I bet the second Joseph gave the manuscript to Martin, I bet he got a sick I'm feeling. Just, I am positive. Can't you see that? I am just positive. He got that. You shouldn't have done that. Why don't do that? You shouldn't have done that. When I was dating the absolutely stunningly beautiful Jennifer Grimshaw, I wanted so badly for her to be my wife. She was my choice. And I kept asking Heavenly Father, is it right? Is it right? Is it right? And I never got verse 8. I never got that overwhelming feeling that it was right. But man, did I love her, and man, did I want to move forward and make her my wife. And I kept dating her, and we kept moving forward. The day I planned on proposing to her, I was in the temple that morning. And all of a sudden, this realization hit me. If it were wrong, he would have let me know long before this moment. If I were on the wrong course, he would have spoken up. So I bowed before him and I said, Heavenly Father, I'm going to propose to Jennifer today. I love her and I am committed to her for the rest of my life. If I'm making a wrong decision, would you please stop me and let me know? I didn't necessarily marry my wife because I got this overwhelming, she is the one feeling. But I never got the, this is wrong And I think we need to have a lot more confidence in ourselves. 
I truly believe Latter-day Saints need to have much more confidence that they're moving in the right direction because I'm not hearing the this is wrong voice. It reminds me of Joseph Philly McConkie talking to his dad and he's like, I'm not getting an answer. And Bruce looked at him and said, well, do you love her? And he's like, yeah, I'm crazy about her. He's like, well, then marry her. The Lord's not marrying her. You are like marry her. So there's this balance, isn't there? I I see both sides, but man, I've never really looked, Bryce, at verse nine that way. But I got to tell you, I've sat in cars before where I'm getting a ride home. And I always speak up when they pass the exit, right? Hey, we missed the exit. So, and I've had that in my life. There've been times when I'm like determined to go on a path and the Lord's like, don't do that. I wish I could say I was 100% on this, right? And we but. ought to have more confidence. We ought to have more confidence that we're going the right direction, not because I received revelation I'm going the right direction, but because I'm not receiving revelation that I'm going the wrong direction. That is crucial to understand. So we've got t- three really good ones on our list. Peace to your mind, this feeling of peace amidst the chaos of the decision. Uh, uh, you will know that it's right, a voice that helps me know that it's right, and then the voice that tells me it's wrong. Learn to recognize and have great confidence because you're, you're, you are or you are not hearing the voice that something is wrong. Now, what's happening in the Doctrine and Covenants is kind of described in the Book of Mormon. I love Enos. If you'll turn to Enos, there's only one chapter. But I love the phrase he gives us in Enos. The whole Doctrine and Covenants is illustrating this. How is Joseph getting these revelations? Enos chapter 1, he's seeking a forgiveness to his sins. And notice in verse 5, there came a voice unto me. And then he clarifies that in verse 10. The voice of the Lord came into my mind. And I love that description. I think that's the very best description I found in the scriptures. The voice of the Lord comes into my mind and told me something. And I think this is the one that everyone thinks is revelation. I think people say, well, I don't get revelation very often, are probably saying, I don't get this very often. And maybe or maybe not true, but this is only one way. But this is a very common way a thought planted in my head. God put a thought. Bruce R. McConkie was once on a horse. He fell off the horse. The horse would spooked and was running. And his dad, all of a sudden, out of the blue, had a thought put in his head. Stop that horse. And he ran and he stopped the horse and then later found that his boy was hanging from it. This is the common God is speaking to me. But it's a voice, and the problem with that is it's very easy to confuse it with my own thoughts, my own worrisome nature. For example, when I was a young man, my family would often go to Lake Powell during the summer. We'd rent a houseboat, and we'd you know drive around, and we'd cliff jump. We loved to cliff jump. And one day, we found this beautiful little private bay. It wasn't very large, but it was beautiful. It was secluded. There was a sheer cliff of probably 40 feet in the shade, and then over on the other side was a kind of a beach. So my dad and my uncle parked the houseboat right next to the cliff so that we could jump off and then jump in to the houseboat, and mom and grandma could watch us. And then we dove into the water to swim over to the beach so we could climb up the rocks and get to the cliff. 
my dad and my uncle dive in and get a very, very strong impression, move the houseboat. And it won't leave them. Move the houseboat. A voice to their mind. So they both swim back and they move the houseboat to a place where we were a little frustrated because it clearly wasn't as good as that spot. I wonder if they looked at each other and thought, is this just in our head? I'm sure there was that worrisome nature. Is this silly? But they both felt this impression, move the houseboat. And then they dive in and they start swimming over to the beach with us. Meanwhile, I've reached the shore and I'm sitting there watching this. Not one minute after they move the houseboat, a massive chunk of the cliff breaks off, slides down, and lands exactly where the houseboat would have been. It would have crushed that houseboat, probably crushed my mom, my grandma. We didn't have cell phones back then. We may have been stranded for who knows how many days. It saved lives that they moved the houseboat. Now, contrast that to something that happens to me constantly. I park my car, I walk in, I'm headed into a store, and I get an impression in my head, you know, you left the car door unlocked, or your daughter left the curling iron on, or my wife gets the impression that the stove is on. That was my favorite one, is we're leaving, do we turn off the stove, right? And I got an impression that we didn't turn off the stove. Now, if that's the Holy Ghost, put, you know, if that's the voice of the Lord to my mind, he might be saving our house from being burned down, or a theft if someone breaks into my car and steals my bag. And so I run back to my car, or I go back into the house, how many times is the oven turned off? It wasn't necessarily revelation. It was most likely your own worrisome nature. So how do you tell the difference between the voice of the Lord coming into your mind and your own thoughts and maybe your worrisome nature trying to worry that the stove was left on? Well, it's, it's my belief that that right there is one of the great challenges of life, is to learn to hear that voice. Boyd K. Packer once said, as an apostle— I listen now to the same inspiration coming from the same source in the same way that I listened to as a boy. And then he just added, the signal's much clearer now. In other words, prophets, seers, and revelators don't get revelation any differently than you do. It's just that they've learned to hear it. They've learned to distinguish between his voice and their own voices. Joseph Smith said this, and I love this because I think this is a clue as to how to grow in Revelation. Joseph Smith said, a person may profit by noticing the first intimation of the spirit of Revelation. For instance, when you feel pure intelligence flow into you, it may give you sudden strokes of ideas so that by noticing it, you may find it fulfilled that same day or soon those things that were presented to your mind by the Spirit of the Lord will come to pass. And thus, by learning the Spirit of God and understanding it, you may grow into the principle of revelation until you become perfect in Christ Jesus. In other words, he seems to be saying that how many times in your life has a thought pumped into your head that suddenly came true, even though it was a seemingly insignificant thing? A thought pops into your head, and then it comes true. Or I would add this, Bryce. What if a thought comes in your head, 
and it's participatory, meaning and you do it. You're sitting and you're talking to your spouse and you're counseling. And as you're beating up the problem, looking at the pros and cons, and as you're sharing thoughts and ideas, pure intelligence is flowing into both of you. And one plus one isn't two, but it's 17. You and your spouse are talking and the Lord's with you. And as you're counseling, all of a sudden a solution that neither of you saw before is available to you. And I think this is the nature of councils. We do it in the church and Joseph's trying to teach. How many times is Joseph trying to train these brethren? Hey, this is how we're going to lead the church. I wonder if Joseph thought to himself, I got to train these guys because I'm going to be gone. This is how revelation works. In other words, I really do see revelation for me, Bryce, as a participation thing. So the idea came, you participated and you immediately saw the result of it. I think what Heavenly Father's doing is he's giving us some, he's coaching us. I mean, silly things like one time I got a very strong impression that I was going to get a phone call and my boss was going to call and change my assignment. Now, that's a silly impression to get, right? But I got a very distinct impression that I was going to get a phone call and my boss was going to call and change my assignment. And not one hour later, my boss called and changed my assignment. Now, it wouldn't have been the end of the world or wouldn't it, the fact that I got the impression didn't change anything other than the fact that I think Heavenly Father was just trying to say, hey, did you notice that thought? Did you notice that was me? That was different. And I learned. I'm learning to distinguish the voices when it's his and when it's mine. And I think what Joseph is saying is practice. Notice how often he puts a thought into your head and that either doing it makes a difference or it comes true. And then begin to distinguish the difference in those voices. God is practicing with us. He's helping us understand how to hear his voice. So there's one we need to add to the list, the voice in our mind. So yes, he does give us peace, an overwhelming peace in our mind, a feeling that it's right, a feeling that it's wrong, and then actual impressions that come into our mind, thoughts, things that we need to say, things that we need to do. But there's a lot more here in the scriptures that we ought to add. Let's do kind of a fun one. Turn with me to 1 Nephi chapter 18, verse 1. How in the world did Nephi know how to build a boat? He had never in his life built a boat. And there's, that's not something the Lord can teach Nephi how to do, speaking to his heart. So how does Nephi know how to build a boat? Notice the word in verse 1. There's a very specific word here. Nephi says he saw it. The Lord did show me. So not only does he put thoughts in our head, but sometimes he puts pictures in our head too. Sometimes we see the answer. And if you'll recognize this, you'll begin to realize how often this happens. Now, Russell Nelson tells a very, very powerful example. So here's an example from a patriarch who has a heart condition who turns to Dr. Nelson Now, Dr. Nelson is going to get two types of these revelations. First, he's going to get the voice of the Lord to his mind. He's going to hear the Lord tell him, but then he's not going to know what to do. I don't know how to do that. And so the Lord's going to show him. Watch those two, the last two things that we've talked about, happen right in front of us. Go ahead, Mike, read that. So President Nelson shared, 
He says, this saintly soul suffered much because of a failing heart. He pleaded for help, thinking that his condition resulted from a damaged but repairable valve in his heart. Extensive evaluation revealed that he actually had two faulty valves. While one could be helped surgically, the other one could not. Thus, an operation was not advised. He received this news with deep disappointment. Later visits ended with the same advice. Finally, in desperation, he spoke to me with considerable emotion. Dr. Nelson, I have prayed for help and have been directed to you. The Lord will not reveal to me how to repair that second valve, but he can reveal it to you. Your mind is so prepared. If you will operate upon me, the Lord will make it known to you what to do. Please perform the operation that I need and pray for the help that you need. That is tremendous faith. Tremendous faith. But I think there's something in that, Mike, right? He recognized that he was not going to get the revelation on how to repair his heart. But Dr. Nelson could. But keep going. Listen for the two manifestations of the Spirit here. So he's about to go into to the operation, and he, he's not really certain how to fix the valve. And his assistant says, well, what are you going to do for that valve? And he, President Nelson's like, I don't know. He says, we began the operation. After relieving the obstruction of the first valve, we exposed the second. We found it to be intact, but so badly dilated that it could no longer function as it should. While examining this valve, a message was distinctly impressed upon my mind. There's number one reduce the circumference of the ring. I announced that message to my assistant. The valve tissue will be sufficient if we can effectively reduce the ring towards its normal size. But how? We could not apply a belt as one would tighten the waist of oversized trousers. We could not squeeze with a strap as one would cinch a saddle on a horse. Then a picture came vividly to my mind. There it is. There's number two showing me how stitches could be placed to make a pleat here and a tuck there to accomplish the desired objective. I still remember that mental image, complete with dotted lines where sutures should be placed. The repair was completed as diagrammed in my mind. We tested the valve and found the leak to be reduced remarkably. My assistant said, it's a miracle. And I responded, it's an answer to prayer. I want to talk about that just for a second, Bryce, and I want to use it to address some of the critics of Christianity. One of the critics, and this is not just one, there are several, but they say things like this. What do Bronze Age prophets and poets have to do with problems of 2021? What does somebody who lived in the 10th century BC have anything to do with truth? I mean, these guys are just old, dusty, long ago people. And I think we learn right out of the gate in the Doctrine and Covenants in section 1, verse 24, where the Lord says, I'm going to speak to you after the manner of your language and your culture. And so this really does help me to adjust my expectations of prophets, my expectations of Scripture, but it also gives me great hope. And what I mean by that is this. The Lord spoke to people in the Bronze Age according to what they could understand. And so today in 2021, we may look back and, and look at those, some of the things that they wrote and say, well, how archaic or how barbaric. And in essence, we're guilty of presentism. We're taking our morals and our values and we're superimposing them on them. And is that not the same here? And what I mean by that is this. I totally believe that President Nelson got that revelation. Obviously, it worked. Obviously, it had never been done. God was with him and he spoke to his mind. But ask yourself this question, in a thousand years, are we going to be performing heart surgery like that? 
Will people in a thousand years look at the surgeries of today and say, you guys are barbarians. You do what with cancer? You're going to give them this poison? Why in the world would God tell Russell Nelson to do it that way? That's not the way to do it. So barbaric. In essence, I really do believe this. I, heart surgery is going to change in a thousand years. We'll, we'll probably, I, <laughs> this is in my fa- fantastic imagination, we'll probably have some pill that you swallow with a nanobot in it. The nanobot will go in there and fix it. But in 1960, when President Nelson performed this operation, that was the tools that were available to him. And this is important because especially if you get into the weeds of section six, seven, eight, and nine, there's stuff in there that enemies to the church say things like, well, that's really strange. And they try to make Latter-day Saints look weird or strange. And I just say, don't be guilty of presentism. And a little cultural commentary, people today are trying to cancel or get rid of evidence that other people lived or that people were good people because they had views of their time. And we just got to be careful of presentism and just honor and respect people where they are. I would certainly want people in a thousand years to give me that kind of benefit of the doubt. And so just a thought there about that, because I just see it being relevant. And another thought, Bryce, I don't think that God could have put that revelation on how to fix this guy's heart into your head or my head. No, definitely not mine. But Russell Nelson was prepared. In other words, I think this is a principle of revelation. God has to have a place to put it. We, our minds have to be prepared for him to put stuff in there. Let me give you a case in point, kind of a, a, an interesting one. We talked in a previous podcast about the death of Alvin Smith and how painful that was to Joseph. And yet it was Alvin's death that prepared the mind of Joseph Smith for the work for the dead, the salvation of billions of people because Alvin died and that allowed Joseph Smith to prepare his mind for that revelation. Great point, Mike. We have to give the Lord a vessel in which we, he can reveal things. So sometimes, you know, for example, I asked a question of the Lord and it took 20 years to get the answer. And sometimes I think, okay, the Lord was seen in my patient, but for me, I had to have training to get my mind in a position to even understand the answer. And so I'm grateful that President Nelson shared this story. He, he certainly didn't have to. And I'm also, I just want to caution all of us to be considerate of other people's experiences and also a a little bit of a caution on comparison. I think sometimes when we hear experiences, we think, well, then the Lord's not with me or the Lord doesn't love me because their experience is better than mine. And I just think we got to be careful to not do that. Um, I don't think we should compare them, but I think what we should do is be open to understanding our experiences. And that's why I'm so grateful that in this podcast, Bryce has laid out The Lord speaks to us in so many different ways. So one of the ways that we open ourselves to more revelation is if we pause and think or write down, how does the Lord speak to me? Or how did he speak to me? And as we think about those things in in the words of the Doctrine and Covenants, where the Lord tells Oliver, cast your mind on the night when I spoke peace to your mind. And by him casting his mind on that, then the Lord gave him another revelation recognizing how God speaks opens up more revelation. So let's do one more on this list. We've got, he speaks a peace to our mind, a voice that it's right, a voice that it's wrong, uh, the voice of God in our mind as if it's a thought, 
Um, he shows us. There's kind of a fun one in the New Testament. If you'll turn to John chapter 14, verse 26, here's another one that I think we just brush off and think it's a coincidence. When I, I wonder how often it's revelation, one of the roles of the Holy Ghost is to remind us. Now, how many times have you remembered something crucial at a crucial moment? You're leaving the house and the Lord says, oh, don't forget that. Oh, that would have been so bad if we'd forgotten that. Pure coincidence that you just happened to remember that as you walked out of the house? Or could that be revelation? Could that be a loving Heavenly Father saying, hey, you're going to need that today. Make sure you take it with you. How many times does he remind us? And just we remember. We just remember things. I can't tell you how many times I've remembered a scripture or a story at the very moment that I meet needed it. Um, how many times do you remember what you've studied at a test? Just all of a sudden you remembered something. And I, I can't help but think when we read John 14, 26, that that's not a very legitimate manifestation of the Holy Ghost, that maybe we ought to give God a little bit more credit than we do and say, thank you, Heavenly Father, for reminding me. Thank you for reminding. I'm much better off because I remember that. It could also be a shout out to the pre-earth life. Yeah. If we really were in Heavenly Father's presence for as long as I think we were, maybe we're really not learning anything. Maybe we're being reminded of stuff we've already learned and already mastered. And so the Lord is kind of speaking to us through the veil saying, remember, yeah. remember who you are. So that's a great list, and I, you can add to it. I think you'll find a whole lot more. Uh, as you go through these early sections of the Doctrine and Covenants, as you go through scriptures, you may want to just keep that list on your mind and just ask yourself, how does he speak? And I'd, we'd love to hear back from you. If you want to post wherever you're hearing this podcast in the notes, just let us know. I'd love to add to my list things that you've added. But now let's go back through these early sections of the Doctrine and Covenants, and let's make a list of how is it, how, what are the rules? What are the rules that govern these? Re- you know, we've been talking about how he speaks, but what can I do to receive more revelation? What are the rules of revelation? How do I unlock more revelation? And let me take you back to section four that we did last week. Last verse of section four is a phrase that's going to be repeated many, many times in the scriptures. And that is, ask, seek, knock. And that's going to become so repeated. That, that's got to be a very significant message. Revelation has to be sought. It's the preparing of the vessel for the answer. So you have to seek it. You have to actively seek revelation. The Lord doesn't just come down and hit us with a two by four and tell us. He usually responds when we are seeking him. So rule number one is you need to seek him. Joseph will write in the letter, the Liberty Jail letter, the things of God are of deep import and time and experience and careful and solemn and ponderous thoughts can only find them out. You have to prepare the way for revelation. Let's go back to section six. You know, the first section of this week's Come Follow Me. Notice how many phrases the Lord uses asking us to seek revelation. So verse two, give heed. 
Verse three, desire, thrust in your sickle, treasure up. Verse five, ask, knock. Verse six, seek, establish. Verse seven, say, keep and assist. Verse 11, inquire. Verse 13, do good, hold out faithful. Verse 18, be diligent. 19, admonish, receive admonition, be patient, be sober, be temperate. Do you see what the Lord's doing here? Verse 25, if you desire of me. Verse 27, if you have good desires. So I just can't help but hear him screaming out, you want revelation? You need to want it. You need to seek it. By the way, it's interesting. President Nelson's revelation came because he went to medical school. So in other words, if you want revelation about your business, if you're doing your business, your mind is prepared. I remember that story by President Packer where he talked about this guy's business was struggling and he couldn't sleep and he'd get up early and go to work and ponder. And it was in those early mornings where he pondered and over time he got the answers and then his business took off and then he had free time to go and serve. And so sometimes I think we think, well, I've got to have my nose in the scriptures 24 hours a day to get revelation. No, it comes when you're moving, when you're living life, right? The scriptures are good, but the scriptures are a mode to get us to communicate with heaven. So, principle number one, the things of God must be sought. Just one more that I was reminded of. Go to section eight, verse one. I say unto you that as surely as the Lord liveth, who is your, your God and your Redeemer, even so surely shall you receive a knowledge of whatsoever thing you shall ask in faith, with an honest heart, believing that you shall receive a knowledge. That's the plea. He says it again in verse 11, ask that you may know the mysteries and that you may translate. So, number one, ask, seek, want. The next one, he said, if you go back to section five to Martin Harris from our previous discussion, he said something very fascinating. If you'll remember the conversation, Martin was looking for evidence. Can I have evidence that these things are true? And he said, you have to believe first, and then comes the evidence. Back in verse 7, they won't believe my words. If they don't believe my words, they wouldn't believe you could produce the gold plates and everything else. Look at verse 16. Whosoever believeth on my words, them will I visit with the manifestation of my spirit, and they shall be born of me. In other words, with God, it's believe first and then see. It's not see first and then believe. If you want revelation, move forward and trust and take that leap of faith, and then comes the evidence, rather than, I'm not going to move. I'm going to sit here until I have proof that it's true. Bryce, this reminds me of the scripture you shared with the ship. There's that phrase in there where he says, I got revelation, and then he says, from time to time. The Lord had shown me in my mind from time to time. In other words, I think it was laid out, but then it kind of came in incremental packets of truth or light. An example for me, and this is just kind of how my brain works. As a child, we didn't have a lot in in my house, but one of the things we had a lot of was books. And I remember being 
probably 16, 17, and I had prayed about the Book of Mormon. I had spiritual experiences with it. And when I was getting ready to go on my mission, I put my papers in and everything, but I didn't have what I thought was a testimony of Joseph Smith. Like I believed the Book of Mormon. I felt these feelings like you're talking about these general things, but I thought, what am I going to tell people? And so I got on my knees and I told the Lord, I'm going to tell people I believe that he's a prophet. And I said, Lord, that's what I'm going to do until you give me this manifestation, this burning in the bosom, this speak to my mind. Until I get that, that's what I'm going to do. And I was it wasn't until I was in the MTC and I'm sitting in the MTC and I'm reading the first vision experience and the witness came. then I knew. And I don't know how to describe it in any other way than it wasn't something I created. It was outside of myself. And I knew right then, like I know that I exist, that Joseph had that experience. And it's something that I can't deny. And it's been something that's been an anchor to me as I've gone down what I call historical dirt roads. Because prior to my experience in the MTC, I had read some things that had caused me to have questions. I just was unsettled in my mind. I relate, Bryce, with Oliver Cowdery, where I'm like, okay, I have this experience, but what about this? What about, you know Oliver Cowdery talked to people in Palmyra. You know he had questions like, well, I hear what you're saying, Joseph, and I heard what your dad said, and I know the feeling I've had, but I've heard all these other things. I guarantee, and we're no different. We're swimming in a world of all this information, and I just don't think it would be any other way because we've got to learn and get that light from heaven. And for me, that experience that I had in the MTC where it was just so powerful, um, that wasn't the only time, but it's an anchor in a sea of all this stuff happening. And so I just want to reiterate what you're saying that sometimes revelation comes when we're on the move. For me, that seems to be more often than not. If I'm sitting in my closet waiting for it, the Lord's like, yeah, Mike, you're doing it wrong. And the Lord sometimes talks to me like this way where the Lord says, Mike, get up and get moving. Yep. Boyd K. Packer in the great candle of the Lord talk said, the testimony is to be gained in the bearing of it. It's the willingness to say the words and then comes a more confirming witness to you that they are true. So that's another rule. He, he tells Martin Harris, you've got to believe and then you shall, you shall see. Now, what happens when you do see? We mentioned this in our last podcast. I remind you, verse 25, verse, section 5, verse 25, Martin Harris was specifically told, I'm going to show you the plates. I'm going to show you, but then you need to testify. Now, notice how that theme kind of flows. Section 6, this week, to Oliver Cowdery, he's going to say the same thing. Look at verse 11. If thou wilt inquire, thou shalt know mysteries which are great and marvelous. Therefore thou shalt exercise thy gift, that thou mayest find out mysteries. That. You're going to have the mysteries. I'm going to tell you these wonderful mysteries. That thou mayest bring many to the knowledge of the truth, yea, convince them of the error of their ways. You will receive much more revelation if you are determined to act on and testify of their information that you receive. That's, he just seems to be repeating that, 
numerous times in these sections. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to show you so that you can manifest it and bring many to the knowledge of truth. So a willingness to testify and a willingness to act on. Just one more time, if you didn't listen to last week's podcast, section 17 with the three witnesses, when he calls the three witnesses, he's going to say, verse 2, I'm going to show you all these things. Now verse 3, And after that you have obtained faith and have seen them with your eyes, you shall testify of them. But there's a balance to that. So go back to section six. You need to testify, but you can't say too much. Because the other side of that is you can't say more than you should. So verse 12, look what he says to Oliver. So verse 11, he says, if you inquire, you can know mysteries so that you can go tell people the mysteries. But last sentence of verse 12, trifle not with sacred things. Now, how do we sometimes trifle with sacred things? Go back to section five to Martin Harris, verse 26. He was very specific he shall say no more unto them except I have seen them. So sometimes we share too much. Sometimes we take sacred things that should remain in the chambers of our heart and we go blurt them in fast and testimony meeting because we have a really cool story to tell. And yet we have trifled with sacred things. We have shared too much. So can I give everyone the rule? I think the Lord gave us the rule in the Book of Mormon. If you want the rule, turn to Alma chapter 12, verse 9. Um, In contending with Zeezrom, Alma gives us the rule. So let me just read the rule of what you can share, what you should share, and what you shouldn't share. Now Alma began to expound these things unto him, saying, It is given unto many to know the mysteries of God. So there's the spiritual experience that you just had. Nevertheless, They are laid under a strict command that they shall not impart only according to the portion of the word which he doth grant unto the children of men, according to the heed and diligence which he shall give unto them. In other words, the Holy Ghost will let you know what you can and should share and what you can and should keep sacred. So don't share too much. I think the Lord wants to give us the stuff we can't talk about. And there's places for that. Back to this idea of esoteric teaching. I think that also takes wisdom, doesn't it? Yeah. It just it's a process of learning when to share, what to share. And that's a complicated thing. For me, one of the ways I know is if I really feel prompted, but even then I mess up sometimes. Yeah. And it's a constant reminder. So, so we saw it in section six. Go to section eight. This is again to Oliver Cowdery about being able to translate the Book of Mormon, but he says that same thing. Look at verse 10. Remember that without faith you can do nothing. Ask in faith. Trifle not with these things. Do not ask for that which you ought not. And there's the balance. Ask for things I want to give you that you can testify to everyone, but there are certain things you need to not ask about. You're not ready for them. And so just a caution that as you testify, as you're willing to testify, just be careful not to testify too much, not to share too much. Don't trifle with sacred things. He says that twice in these early sections, trifle not with sacred things. I think Joseph learns this lesson when he gets to Kirtland. There's a circle of people that Joseph confides in, 
and some of these guys that he confides in and gives them very specific stuff that they're not ready for are actually in some of the first mobs that cause him a lot of physical harm. And after Kirtland, Joseph gets really careful. And so by the time we get to Nauvoo, I mean, Joseph's not around long. He's, he's gone at 38. But when he gets to Nauvoo and he's laying out this esoteric stuff, this temple stuff, it's a tight group of people that he knows he can trust. Now, granted, even when that happens, we get the laws and the Higbees and they kind of stir up problems. And so I think it's a thing that Joseph's continually learning. And even today, even today, it's just one of those things that the, these problems of mortality, like who do I trust? And I think one of the things the Lord's saying is, I'm going to trust you if you have this desire and if you seek, but then I'm not just giving it to fulfill your intellectual curiosity. I'm giving it to you so you can go bear witness and, and do good. Yeah. Joseph will say later, the reason we do not have the secrets of the Lord revealed to us is because we do not keep them, but reveal them even to our enemies. And then Joseph Smith said, I can keep a secret till doomsday. Is it any wonder why he had so much? Is because he knew that delicate balance between what to testify of, of what to testify, and what to keep sacred and keep it in your heart. And then one more reminder I love if you want to go back to section six, he kind of confirms this whole idea. There are things. I need to not share. I love how he says it in verse 20, section 6, verse 20. Behold, thou art Oliver, and I have spoken unto thee because of thy desires. Therefore, treasure up these words in thy heart. So one more way we can receive more revelation. Testify, but don't share too much, but always treasure up what he's given us. The more we treasure up what he's given us, the more we invite him to give us more. Think about it. Richard G. Scott said that about writing down revelations. When you write down a revelation, you're saying to Heavenly Father how excited you are to have it and that you want more and you invite more revelation. So treasure up these words in thy heart. I also love section 6, verse 32. Surround yourself with people who want what you want. Verily, verily, I say unto you, as I said unto my disciples, where two or three are gathered together in my name as touching one thing, behold, there will I be in their midst. Even so, I am in the midst of you. You want more revelation? Then gather with people who want more revelation. That's a simple rule. If you want revelation, then surround yourself with people who want more revelation. Because Jesus says, when two or three are gathered and they want more revelation, I will give them more revelation. And the last thing I would add is the lesson he learns in not translating. If you'll go to section 9, sometimes we make the same mistake that Oliver made. Verse 8, I say unto you that you must study it out in your mind and then ask me. In other words, there's divine homework we have to do. You have to do your divine homework. If you think that God is, that I'm not going to prepare my Sunday school lesson, that I'm just going to walk in there and the Lord's going to tell me what to say, then you have missed the principle of revelation. There is an assignment that you do more than just sit there and wait for him to tell you. And that's the mistake that Oliver made, is you have to pay the price. You have to bring the Lord the vessel that you want him to fill. If you bring him a little thimble, that's exactly what he's going to feel. If you bring him a large, massive container, he will fill 
whatever container you bring him. So study it out. Pay the price to receive revelation. So those are some great principles that you're going to find. Now, as you go through these early sections of the Doctrine and Covenants, watch for them. Watch for the Lord teaching them how to hear His voice. How does it come? In what form does it come? And what are the rules that invite more? That's what this week, last week, and the next couple of weeks are all going to be about. That's a major theme as we, that we see in the first few sections of the Doctrine and Covenants. People sometimes ask, how did Oliver's translation go? Was it like Peter's, where Peter walks on the water only briefly? And the answer is, we don't know. And the reason why is because that piece of the manuscript is missing. After the manuscript was written, and after the printer's manuscript was written, this manuscript, this original work, was put in the Nauvoo house in the cornerstone and was damaged by water. And so historically, what we would like to see is Joseph Smith's handwriting for a period of time with him acting as scribe and Oliver acting as translator. We don't have that evidence. And so we don't know how his translation took place or even if it did. One historian wrote, though we know very few details about Oliver's attempt to translate, it apparently did not go well. And then another author writes that there is some evidence that perhaps Oliver took part in receiving a revelation. And that revelation was section seven. And we don't know, but just look at this. Go to section six. If you look in verse 27, it says, you shall assist in bringing to light with your gift those parts of my scriptures which have been hidden because of iniquity. And in section six, he's told that he will translate. Verse 25. I granted you a gift, and if you desire me to translate, even as Joseph. So he's told that he can do it, but then it seems, we, like I said, we don't know. We just don't have the evidence, but it seems as if, as if he fails. But if you look at that word hidden right there at the end of verse 27, you're going to bring parts of scriptures that have been hidden. Now go to section seven. Look at the description. Look at the last sentence. This revelation is a translated version of a record made on parchment by John and hidden up by himself. In other and words, it was a document that neither of them had. They didn't have access they to it. They translated a document that neither of them had in their possession. So maybe, we don't know, but maybe Oliver was participatory in this, in receiving it and seeing it. Now, like I said, we don't know. But I'm throwing that out there. Another way to look at this is when Sydney, and we'll get to this when we get to section 76, but when Sydney and Oliver have the vision of the degrees of glory. They have it together. Now, they both kind of have their words, how they clothe it, and it's clothed in Joseph's words, but Sidney was participating in this. And so I'm just throwing that out there as a possibility. I don't understand how the translation took place. When I was much younger, I looked at this and thought, perhaps Joseph memorized the characters and he did translations the way anybody approaches languages, right? Where they learn the, the grammar and the structure and all those things. I'm convinced now after many semesters, I... I stand before you and say, I don't think that's how it's going on. I just don't. And Joseph never tells us. Other people do. We have all these other accounts where people explain how it took place, but they didn't translate the Book of Mormon. We just have their descriptions. In fact, when Joseph was put on the spot to tell us, he refused to do so. And he says, it is not meant for the world to know the details of how that translation occurred. Yeah. And he never did come and tell us. 
What's interesting, Mike, is we have about 28% of the original document, the original manuscript that would show who was translating, and not one verse from the book of Mosiah. We do not have a single verse. We have quite a bit of 1 Nephi and 2 Nephi, and we have bits and pieces of Alma, but we have nothing from Mosiah. And that's where we would know whether Oliver was translating and Joseph was writing, but we just do not have the original manuscript for anything in Mosiah. So this hidden up, this document, this hidden up by himself, Joseph and Oliver or Joseph sees this document that has been hidden. Here's the backstory to section seven. There are kind of a couple different schools of thought in Christianity in Joseph's day, about what's going on with John. Traditionally, John the Apostle goes to Ephesus and starts a church, and that you can go and actually visit the place where he's purported to have died. And so there are a lot of Christians that say that John died. There are other Christians that read the end of the Gospel of John, and they say, no, John did not die. And then you have these enigmatic phrases in the Gospels where Jesus says, many of you that are standing with me will be here when I come again. And so early Christians thought Jesus is coming and he's coming soon. And then later Christians read this and thought, well, maybe what he's saying is that some of the people in his audience didn't die. And so you can see Oliver and Joseph kind of having these conversations like, what do we do with this? How do we interpret this? And this is And they a have revelation. access to the Yerman Thummim. Yeah. So it's like let's find out. Let's find out. And so in this in this revelation, we learn that John doesn't die, that he's translated. Now that they're not in Third Nephi yet. We're, when they get to Third Nephi and they're translating that, a lot of this stuff is kind of explained. But in Mosiah, it's not really there, at least in the work that they're doing. And so in this text, that's what they're told, is that, well, look in verse 4. For this cause the Lord said to Peter, if I will that he, John, tarry till I come, what is that to thee? For he desired of me that he might bring souls unto me. But thou desirest that thou mightest speedily come unto me in my kingdom. And so... He says he will be, John, verse 6, a flaming fire and a ministering angel. I'm going to make him as one of those. And verse 7, I will make thee to minister for him and for thy brother James. And unto you three will I give this power and the keys of the ministry till I come. In essence, what I'm getting out of this is John has this desire, verse 1. And he's like, what is it? Verse two, John says, give me power over death. And the Lord's like, you got it. You're going you're gonna to live. You're going to have power over death. And Peter's like, wait, um, that's different than what I'm getting. So there's this comparison. I know, Bryce, I love how you apply this where you're like, okay, it's really kind of cool. It's a gee whiz moment to talk about translated beings. It's more than just a curious second. Right. It's, it's really cool that it answered the question, does John live or does John die? But there's they more. Got the definitive answer that John does live and he is part of the Lord's work. But what I love is there's a really powerful personal application here. And that is that Peter had a specific desire that a lot of us have. Peter's desire, notice in verse 4, Thou desirest that thou might speedily come unto me in my kingdom. Peter's desire was to live a good life, then die and go to celestial kingdom. And notice what Jesus says in verse 5. That was a good desire. If your desire is for your salvation, that is a good desire. If what you want is to live a good life and then go live in the celestial kingdom, that is a good desire. 
But notice verse 5, John wanted to do more or a greater work. And he has undertaken a greater work. In other words, the great secret of life, if you will learn it, the great secret of being like Heavenly Father is to spend your life serving others so that they receive salvation. It is wonderful. It is a good desire that you receive salvation. If your desire is to live a good life and go to the celestial kingdom, I think Jesus says that's a good desire. But the great secret of life is that there is a greater happiness to be had. And the greater happiness is when you focus on other people. What makes God God is his greatest desire is for our salvation and our happiness. And the moment you learn that lesson, that is a hard lesson to learn. But the moment you learn that lesson, you unlock the secret of deity. You unlock the secret of Godhood. I think there's another lesson here too, which is so common to man, and that's comparison. If you go to the last section of the Gospel of John, in essence, Jesus tells Peter, hey, you're going to be crucified. And in tradition and in history, that's what happens to Peter. That's not a really cool message to get if you're Peter, probably going, now in one sense, you're looking at a resurrected being. So you're like, well, I'm going to be resurrected. I'm looking at a man who was crucified and it's going to be okay all is well. But on the other hand, when John's told he'll have power over death, I can just see Peter looking at John, looking at Jesus and going, man, he got the cooler deal. Like I want that guy's blessing. And it's back to that comparison. Yeah. I love what he says to Peter. If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Yeah, what are you stressed about? Now, in the John version, he adds one more phrase, and that is, follow thou me. In other words, what I do in that person's life is between me and that person. You follow me. And we get so bent up into what God is doing into that person. What are you doing in that person's life? And what are you doing in that person's life? And why are you giving that to that person? And I can just hear the Lord say to me, Bryce, if I'm doing this in Mike's life, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. It's going to be okay. And I love in the Chronicles of Narnia, um, in the horse and his boy, Aslan, when he finally reveals himself that he's been there all along, the boy asked, well, why did you scratch her like that? If that was you, why did you scratch her so badly? And Aslan says, that is her story, not yours. No one is told any story but their own. And I think we need to be content that God is writing a beautiful story in the life of everyone around me. I don't need to compare my story to their story. God is writing a beautiful story in my life and in their life, and I don't need to know all the details about their story. I'm just going to, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. I love that lesson. I want to just talk a little bit about historically what's going on in these sections as well, and what I call scriptural editing. Sometimes when people are first exposed to these ideas, it kind of throws them for a loop when we say things like, scripture has been edited. But if you study the Doctrine and Covenants enough, and especially if you start reading some of these things like Revelations and Context, we refer to that, or Saints, if you pick up Saints, and you really start looking at how did the Revelations of the Restoration get compiled, you'll see that the Doctrine and Covenants had editing. Now, the Book of Mormon's different. The Book of Mormon is this pure river, 
and it just flows. And even in the Book of Mormon, Joseph will come back and he'll fix some of the commas and the periods, and we might get some of the spelling changes, and he'll even change uh, white to pure, and in ancient languages, they're synonymous. But just know that um, the editing of the Doctrine and Covenants was a thing. And so, for example, in section 8, verse 7, in the Book of Commandments, this is how it originally read. Oliver was told that he would be working with the rod. Here's what it says. But now this is not all, for you have another gift, which is the gift of working with the rod. Behold, it has told you things. Behold, there is no other power save God that can cause this rod of nature to work in your hands. That's how it read. In 1835, Joseph edits it, and now it reads as follows. Now this is not all thy gift, for you have another gift, which is the gift of Aaron. Behold, it has told you many things. Now, today we have verse 7, which reads, Behold, there is no other power save the power of God that can cause this gift of Aaron to be with you. Therefore, doubt not. Enemies of the church say, oh, you're guilty of editing. Joseph in 1835 was on the committee that edited this. Why? And all kinds of questions come out. Some of the questions are this. Why did this change take place? And what was going on in the original text? And what does it tell us about Oliver, Joseph, and their views on God, and how he communicates with man? And finally, does this even matter? And what is the relevance for us today? So I want to start off by just saying that Oliver Cowdery lived in a time period, and so did Joseph, when biblical ideas, languages, and practices were a little bit different then than they are now. And I would submit to you in 200 years, we'll probably have different ideas. But in their time period, and historians have spoken about this and written about this extensively, people had different views of God and they were in in even revelation and how it worked. So Joseph was a family typical of many early Americans who practiced what we would call forms of Christian folk magic, as it were. One historian, David Hall, noted, he said, people in the 17th century inherited a lore that stretched back to the Greeks and the Romans. Whenever the colonists spoke or or wrote of wonders, they drew freely on this lore. Theirs was a borrowed language. High or low, learned or unlearned, these people had absorbed a host of older beliefs. So for example, like a horseshoe or a rabbit's foot or a divining rod. Oliver Cowdery had a divining rod. We don't know necessarily what he used it for, but traditionally they were used to find water or to find minerals. And he was in this soup, as it were, of American culture. Now there was a pushback against it. And so we kind of have two forces. And this is the age of the enlightenment. So we have these old superstitious beliefs, what we would call superstition. And then we have this enlightened age. And it's like the ocean coming to the beach. And there's this froth of the water and the sand kind of being mixed. And Joseph, it's as if he has one foot in the enlightenment and one foot in this ancient tradition. Joseph didn't explain to us why he edited this, but I'm going to give you my take. But before I do... Just know that in the show notes, we'll include lots of examples from historical, even you know Methodist reverends, lots of different people that demonstrated that they use folk magic. Several reverends would write letters on how to make a divining rod and how to use it and these kind of things in the 1700s and 1800s. And that was just kind of a thing. And once again, Joseph was in this worldview. And so sometimes enemies of the church will take some of these ideas and then they will 
show them to people to say, look, these people, these Latter-day Saints are weird. And I'm always like, okay, we're back to that conversation we had with President Nelson and the heart surgery on presentism. We've got to be careful. We've got to look at this through that lens. One historian asked that question, you know, why was this edited? And I really like what he said. Joseph had time and experience necessary to place his 1829 assessment of the meaning of Oliver's gift of working with the rod in a more accurate perspective. Both Joseph and Oliver had developed away from an emphasis on religious or mystical meanings of such mechanical objects. Why? Well, because they've matured spiritually. They've come to see things differently. And I can just see Joseph looking at this saying, how are we going to appear to the outside world? And so by this editorial change, he softens it a little bit. We're back to what Bryce said. Don't tell more than you know. Now, that being said, I just want to just nerd out for a second. There is so much you can do with this rod because anciently Aaron had it. Moses had one. I think the rod that Nephi has, we're talking about the same stuff and it's tied into kingship. Here I go geeking out on this again, right? The tree. I have a ton of Old Testament references where the king will say he's sitting under the tree with a rod. We'll put all this in the show notes. I think this is all tied to temple. And I think Joseph's looking at this and Joseph's like, I cannot even go there. Let's keep it simple. I'm going to communicate to you in your heart and mind. We're going to change this to the gift of Aaron. Now, if you have eyes to see and you've read the Old Testament, you're like, what's the gift of Aaron? Well, read Exodus. It's right there. The scriptures are layered. But today we read this and it's been softened significantly. But let us not be guilty of presentism and throw Joseph or Oliver under the bus because we would not want people in a thousand years to throw us under the bus. We've got to read it for what it is. Um, It's beautiful. But Bryce, I love all the application of how you're like, how do I know if God's talking? Because I think that really is the heart of these sections. Like, how do I apply this? That's the main point. Yep. And so as I have received revelation, I testify that Joseph was an instrument in the Lord's hands, that he really was a prophet. But I testify that he was a human being and that he did make mistakes. And he's trying to figure things out as he goes. We ought to just shroud him in kindness and acceptance and not necessarily expect a prophet to always be perfect. There's no way a young man with as limited experience as he had dealing with the people with such different backgrounds could possibly think the way we think today with years of experience, years of working with the Holy Spirit. I'm born and raised in the church, and that's not a luxury that Joseph Smith had. I was given the gift of the Holy Ghost at age eight. And again, that's not a luxury that Joseph Smith had. He's figuring these things out as he goes. But I testify based on the whisperings of the Spirit to my heart and soul, my mind and my heart, that that man was a prophet of God. And with that, we'll see you next week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.